we are definitely in a time where self-development um, is an incredibly strong trope. For many people, leaving work is not, like, unstressful. I'm Maria Bruce Peterson. I'm Johanna Kinnock. And this is The Five Podcast, where we invite exciting people to guide you through the big questions of today. So it's been a while since we last recorded a Five podcast, and the obvious reason for that is that there's been a pandemic raging all over the world. And apart from the obvious tragedy that that pandemic has caused, it also seems to have caused a kind of existential crisis in a lot of us because we've been at home, we've been lethargic, and we've been worried. In that sense, we haven't been productive in the same way that we usually are, and it's made a lot of us feel insufficient or even worthless in some cases. So we began to wonder why not being productive has such a great effect on us. It was starting to feel like we weren't really anything if we weren't producing. So for this episode of The Five Podcast, we ask, in light of corona, how do we revalue productivity? We turn to Henry Ford, Pointless Ducks, and Danish debater Emma Holten for answers. But let's start somewhere else really quickly. I want to introduce you all to my new podcast co-host, Maria Bruce Peterson. Woohoo! Yeah, hi. I'm hi. Maria. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, welcome. Yeah, so um, just a little bit about me. I'm a Danish journalist. I'm Copenhagen-based, and I've written a lot about gender and media in the past. And now I'm just really looking forward to diving into the, some of the big questions. So being unproductive in isolation has been really weird for the both of us, Jenna. And we try to figure out why. Is there something in our time that's making us obsessed with productivity? Yeah, I mean, it's been crazy because the very first thing that I read about uh, quarantine was the day after self-isolation kind of uh, was uh, was put into order in, in, in Denmark. And, and I just read this thing about how uh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear when he was in isolation and Isaac Newton kind of discovered gravity and there just seemed to be this immense pressure to kind of create something or produce something even when we're in this time of absolute chaos and uh, and stress and worry. So I kind of started wondering how much of that pressure is normal and something that's just like a natural human experience or need and how much of it is from society. And I found this really interesting Guardian article, which kind of argues that there's some degree of that kind of wish and desire to be productive that is normal. Um, and it puts it like this. It's a long read from The Guardian. Given that the average lifespan consists uh, of only about 4,000 weeks, a certain amount of anxiety about using them well is presumably inevitable. We've been granted the mental capacities to make infinitely ambitious plans, yet almost no time at all to put them into practice. So I guess that just is trying to say that we're bound to be stressed because we can imagine all sorts of ways we want to live our lives and it's not possible to live all of them. So we want to be productive and get the most out of the time we have. Yeah, you want to be doing something while you're still here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that makes sense to me, right? But then there's also kind of something in addition to that, which is, I don't know, a sort of need to be productive constantly, I guess. 
Yeah, and I mean, from an employer perspective, it's always been important to see how productive can your employees be. And um, I found this really brilliant article from the Danish media Setland that sort of looked into the history of productivity and argued for why a 15-hour work week is actually ideal. And it turned out that in the in the 1930s, during the Depression, different business owners were experimenting with how working less hours were making their employees more productive. So the man behind Kellogg's Cornflakes, he introduced a six-hour workday and his workers were as productive as when they were working eight hours a day. In the 1930s, economist John Maynard Keynes, he theorized that as we were as a society advancing and becoming more productive, we'd end up working only 15 hours a week. And our biggest problem was would be how to spend all our free time. That's not what happened, was it? <laughs> no, spoiler alert, that's not how we're living today. And um, so I guess the funny question is, when shorter days, shorter work hours are good for business, why are we still working so much and why do we want to seem productive? Yeah, and it's like the more we work, the more um, what we want to get out of work multiplies as well. Like we work more and then there are more goods that we want. And so therefore we want to work more so that we can afford the cars and the and the fancy phones and whatever. So it's like all the the impulses for working are kind of multiplying constantly. Wasn't that what Henry Ford said as well about like, uh, yeah, if it, I give my, yeah, my, what was it? He said that when my factory workers are working 60 and 80 hours a week, they have no time to be buying cars and driving around in my cars. So that's bad for business if they're working all the time. So there's some structures that are kind of telling us as well to be like productive consumers when we're off work as well. And I think that's might be why there's this sense that when you're free, you have to to make something of yourself as well. You have to create something. Maybe you have to put it on Instagram. You know, that's also in a sense being productive. It's like there's not time to just have a hobby that's just useless and mindless anymore. So we kind of plan our relaxation time. Um, and maybe that's when it gets like doubled up. Like our value as producing humans isn't only bound up with how much we produce at work or how quickly we can produce it, but also what we do when we're at home, what kind of sourdough we're making, what kind of origami like statues we're making. And I think that's why the whole issue of productivity sort of imploded during Corona, because our free time and our work time and our leisure time was all muddled together. So for this episode of the podcast, we just really wanted to investigate why do we feel that our worth is so tied up on productivity and how do we escape that? Yeah, and that's when we thought of Emma Holton, the Danish debater, who herself has a chronic illness, but uh, so has had a lot of uh, issues during Corona because she's had to self-isolate a lot. So we invited her in the studio and that's what we're going to do in the next half of the podcast is speaking to her. Okay, Emma, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, so you're someone we've been following for the longest time. Oh, t terrifying. <laughs> Thank no, you. Yeah, so you're a debater, you're a gender expert at the company Oxfam Ibis, and uh, you're also living with a chronic illness. Yes. Yeah, and um, you have also been known for criticizing both gender norms as well as more neoliberal working structures. 
I have been known to do that, yes. <laughs> That's so sort of what we're hoping you'll do today as well. <laughs> oh, I will deliver on that. <laughs> do so not worry. Do not worry. So when Rhea and I first started meeting up to work on this podcast, we got pretty real pretty quick about how being unproductive had made us feel less worthy. And that was something that resonated with Emma. I think I think it's super interesting because I feel the same way that you do, that we it feels like we're working more than we ever did. But when you're asking, like research shows that Danes actually have half an hour's more free time a day than they did 10 years ago. However, I think what has happened is that more time feels like work. Like um, free time feels more like work than it used to. Um, Why do you think that is? I think that we are definitely in a time where self-development um is an incredibly strong trope like we have to optimize like there's this writer that i really love gia tolentino she calls it self-optimization um and she talks about how you know taking care of yourself and being nice to yourself and improving yourself those two things have just completely merged together so the way that we you know enjoy ourselves is now also the ways that we develop ourselves. So you'll work out and you'll be like, this is self-care, or you'll do your whole skincare routine or and be like, this is self-care. But the fact is what you're actually doing is working. It's a type of labor because if you didn't do it, you would feel bad, right? So you're not doing it because you feel good doing it. You're doing it because you would feel bad if you didn't do it. And that is incredibly fucking stressful yeah you also have to buy the face mask <laughs> yes, exactly and like the serums and like yeah. everything and and i think that it's so interesting because when you look at the actual you know paid labor that danes do we do less than we did 10 years ago but everyone is more stressed and it's like no one can really explain why but i think when we look at our own lives we can kind of explain why. For example, when I speak to my friends who have kids and they talk about this concept, the intranet, which is where parents communicate about their kids' development in school with the yeah. teacher. And I'm like, I went to school 15 years ago. My parents didn't talk to my teacher. We ever. had a little book. We had yeah. a little book that the teacher wrote in if ever we did yeah. something. But it's that like was it. Emma messed up or Emma needs a vacation or whatever. Like that was the amount of contact. And it just seems that every aspect, like your children's development, your own development, has mimics the the way we work. So we send emails all the time, right? Everything is email and everything is screen and everything is optimization. So I think for many people, leaving work is not like unstressful. It's not leaving work. No, you're still working. You're still developing. You're still constantly thinking in how can we improve this situation? Yeah. And then you also have to document that optimization. <laughs> yeah. So like you will do a face mask and then post about that. So it becomes productive in its own sense as well yeah what's the point of having no wrinkles if no one knows <laughs> did you feel that pressure personally to kind of self-optimize during quarantine i think i've been working all during quarantine uh from home so i have just been on the regular neoliberal bus all the, <laughs> all the time but i definitely felt like okay uh now i can't work out the way i'm used to do so i have to do that at home 
um, and like I have to make the most of this moment. Like I was that type of person. Like now I can finally read this huge novel of 800 pages that yeah, I have. Now you told story out. Like, yeah, now like I read Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, and I was so proud. Oh my god, I've so, got that like looking at me from my shelf at home. Yeah, it's so long, but it's it's all it's good, but it's long. But so I had that like I must squeeze this moment, which is the same thing that you're talking about, right? And that you know we're there's not a moment that is just allowed to be filled out. Do you think there's a, ta a taboo around saying, "Hey, I've just not got anything on today"? Yeah, for sure. I I definitely because it make people will perceive you as lonely. Yeah, but there's also this aspect of being busy or being super productive that has a sort of social capital like we'll meet up and you'll ask me oh how are you doing and I'm like I'm super busy I have back-to-back -back <laughs> meetings or I was so busy today I forgot to eat lunch and that's a status signifier in and of itself and I think it also makes us really devalue the value of meaningless time like not the not the value in that it makes us productive but in that it makes us happy um I, I think that I, when you look at it from an economic perspective, the way economists measure value and predict productivity is unsurprisingly like how much money do you make in an hour? Mm -hmm. So if you used to be able to make one clock in one hour, that was your productivity. And then if the next year you make two clocks, you increase your productivity and you can get the income from two clocks. But the fact is most people don't work making clocks anymore. We all have, you know, these productive like these weird productive streaks where we write something or we listen to something or we try to understand something. So we work in a completely different way. But we still measure productivity by income in the economic system. Mm -hmm. So we still have this like incredibly skewed and small way of understanding like what does productivity mean? So you think it's more about broadening out the uh, definition of productivity? Or at least the definition of value, I think, because... I think the way that you're describing looking at productivity in during COVID means that you have a pretty, and so do I, limited sense of what productive times use is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if we look at, you know, like watching a movie, maybe it's something that makes you happy. And that is extremely valuable, but we have not been taught that being happy is particularly valuable. It's much more valuable to be super unhappy, but working a lot. Yeah, yeah. there's a great <laughs> article that we've been obsessed with this week um, in Current Affairs, which said, animals are useless and you should be too. <laughs> and it was kind of critiquing this one guy who'd written in The Atlantic about how he wanted to die at 75, because after that, people just become kind of unproductive parts of society and it just speaks out and he was like oh, all they do at past 75 is mow their lawn and read books and he was go like, on motorci motorcycle trips <laughs> yeah, and he was that like that sounds, sounds amazing <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's like living yeah but the the point of the article was that we have to have time for ourselves that is meaningless that you have to have time that has no no outcome in and of itself and also like time that, yeah, time that isn't about doing something for someone else. Yeah. Like I think a lot of us see productivity as us producing something for other people. Like if you're working for someone or you know, like you're producing an economic output or whatever, that's productivity for us. Um, and that is also like an extremely good way to make people identify with their jobs as if it was who they are, which I think is super, super toxic.
um, because certainly I think a lot of people, especially in America, luckily not that many people here, but many people in Denmark have also been fired, have come to realize that, you know, a job is temporary mm. and these people don't treat you like you're an integral, important part of their identity. And I think a super important teaching from from this time would be to say like, it's fine that work is work. It's an element of what I do, but it is not everything that I am. And it doesn't define, you know, my interests. And I think something that I'm really bad at doing myself is asking people at first time I meet them, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, we should not do that. Um, and, but instead start of thinking, you know, yeah, like at my job, I enjoy it. I make my money there. But if I'm not there anymore, that is also fine. I will still be the same person. Um, and that would also, as workers, give us more power uh, over them if we don't identify too closely with it personally. Did quarantine make you think more about that and kind of distance yourself in a positive way from some of those structures? Yes, I think I think a good thing about quarantine was the same thing that was hard about it is that you had time to reflect on a lot of life choices, <laughs> both some bad ones and some good ones. Um, Emma's done a lot of advocacy work on how society should get better at recognizing the labor that doesn't take place in the workplace, i.e. the labor that takes place in the home. It seemed to her that what a lot of people were really contemplating during lockdown was whether or not they were otherwise spending their time in the right way. And that's my impression from a lot of people that the lockdown has made a lot of people feel that they work too much. Mm. And that especially people with children, actually, especially I think a lot of men with children, Yeah, I've realized that they're cheating themselves out of a lot of experiences. What I've been trying to push for a long time now and I think has become more clear under quarantine is how incredibly important well-functioning public health is and public childcare is for gender equality. If I'm not mistaken, I think we can assume that there will be a skewering uh, also during quarantine between who in the couple have been able to work more and who has been taking more responsibility at home. Also because many men have more well-paying jobs, so their careers are perceived to be more important. And I don't think there's any problem at all with spending a lot of time working at home. I think that makes a lot of sense. The current issue in the political situation that we're in now, though, is though that it makes you poor. Wait, what does, sorry? When you when you do a lot of the unpaid labor in the home, you, for example, in Denmark, women do an hours more a day, every day of the year of unpaid labor than men do. And men work an hour more in paid labor. Mm-hmm. And women have around 300,000 Danish kroner less in their pension fund than men's do, men do, and they earn about 20% less from the birth of their first child through their entire career than men do. And of course, like it can be, it could be a choice. I think it's like a combination of choice and tradition, but it, it can put you in an incredibly precarious economic situation if you end up getting divorced or end up, you know, outliving your husband. Um, and I think that's what I'm trying to think about now that how can we make a system where we understand that the labor in the home is something that you have to, like, it has to be done, someone has to do it, but it shouldn't make you poor. Um, and I think that's a big challenge for us. And I think the more 
people are going to be interested in maybe being more at home, the more we're going to consider how that problem can be solved. Yeah, just tying into that, do you think we'll come come out of all of this with a greater understanding of the value of sort of unpaid labor and unproductive labor? I think certainly we are reassessing our understanding of value in general. I think a lot of people have come to understand that, you know, maybe there are thousands of people who work in advertising making like thousands and thousands a year and they are less important than a nurse making almost nothing. That, you know, we have maybe seen that income and pay doesn't necessarily reflect how actually important you are for society and for upholding the health of everybody and the well-being of everybody. And I think that is a challenge that is super important to create a more solidary society and a more, you know, empathetic society, and hopefully a society where nurses get a little bit more money. Mm. Um, and, And I think it has made a lot of people reassess just like, what is it that life is about really? Um, Cause yeah, we've had a lot of thinking time. So I, I think going out of this, yeah, people will, in the beginning, they'll be like, oh, they can't get back, wait to get back to normal, and they're so excited about it. But I think in the long run, like it has changed some people's perception of, of what is valuable. I definitely think so. Emma's experience of the corona crisis was greatly affected by the fact that she's living with a chronic illness. Yeah, so um, I started isolating on March 9th, which was pretty early for Denmark. Um, and the reason that is, is that I have, like you mentioned, a chronic illness called ulcerative colitis, which is kind of like Crohn's disease, but it's only in the bowel system. Um, And the thing with COVID-19 or coronavirus is that in the beginning, like they had no idea who was in the risk group. They didn't know if I could potentially die because I had this illness. And my issue is that not only do I have an illness, I'm also on immunosuppressant medicine, which means that in order for me to be healthy and live my life, I have to have a suppressed immune system. So when I get the regular flu, I get much thicker than any any of you would do. So what they did from the beginning was just like tell me, you know, you should act as if you're a 75-year-old man who's been smoking since 75. Um, And so I completely isolated myself. I didn't enter any stores. I didn't go outside to meet any people. I only took like small walks in the evening when no one was around. I had basically no human contacts except for my partner for one and a half months. Um, And how was that? I thought it was going to be fine. It's it's interesting because Obviously, like I am an extrovert in some sorts of ways, like I enjoy being out a lot and I feel very close to loads of people, um, but I also have no problem being alone, like I've traveled alone and I really enjoy it. So I thought I was going to be fine, but I think about three or four weeks um, into it, I started having these like anxiety um, attacks that had to do with me, I felt like I was losing my sense of reality. Like I I didn't get a reality check from other people. So I would get, for example, this idea that all my friends hated me. Like I, I would be like, no one misses me. They're all just so happy that they can't see me. And now that they're not talking to me, they've come to realize that I'm a bad person. And like, I'm not good at anything, any of my jobs. I'm not a good activist. I'm not a good feminist. I'm like nothing of what matters to me is what going to work out because I was not getting that like 
reassurance that I get from contact with other people that my life, my life is happening and everything is all right. So I felt incredibly disconnected from um, everyone else. And I felt that nothing was going to be the same again because I had like severed these um, contacts and with other people. And I think it sounds silly when I say it now, but I think everyone who has anxiety knows that it's not silly when it's happening. It's It seems very intense and extremely real. Um, yeah, and we were wondering, I mean, our uh, initial thoughts about what could maybe bring us more compassion after this is all of us having been isolated, we might think more about those people who haven't had the same agility or mobility as the rest of us beforehand. So you as a person that's had to isolate a lot, have you th had any reflections on, on that aspect of it as well? For a lot of people who don't understand what limits on the body means, this has definitely, I think, been a learning experience. And I remember this when I first became ill and, and understood that I was, you know, seriously ill. It was very shocking and it, it really is a taboo to lose control of your body in that way because we have an issue or a view of the human being where it's like if you're strong as a person you're in control right you decide what happens it's not everybody else's fault but then there i was and my body was attacking myself and i, I couldn't do anything and i was i let i lost so much control and i think this is the first time for a long time that some people have just like lost control mm. of their life and of what they're able to do. And I think that is a really good learning experience for people who are used to having a lot of agency and power over their own lives and understanding that that is every day for a lot of people not having that control. Um, I hope it breeds compassion. <laughs> some people are beyond saving on compassion, <laughs> but, I think, but I think a lot of people understood maybe got a sense of what it means to to not have power over ele every element of your life. And I think while losing control is extremely painful and 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 taboo in many ways, it's it also gives you an understanding of the situation of a lot of people that are sometimes that can feel very far away. Yeah, because right now there's been this sort of collective losing of control and this collective losing of mobility for a lot of people. So hopefully that'll be somewhat of an eye opener. And it's interesting because the people who have lost their shit the most is like rich people, right? People who are used to being, you know, do, traveling everywhere and doing everything. And like, for a lot of people, they like, I, I saw this woman I, I follow who who is is also disabled and on welfare here in Denmark and she's like my life hasn't changed that much I don't travel I don't meet people regularly like and yeah who to control who, is class privilege yeah, for sure yeah and you know being you know having to do what the government says for poor people like that's the everyday life um so I think certainly we've gotten a taste of us who are so lucky to be able to do a lot of things in our everyday life have gotten a taste of what some people are living all the time. And I think if we're able to frame it in that way, it could be uh, a port way to understanding things in a different way. I think that's a very beautiful note to sort of end on today. Emma, thank you so much for coming here. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you so much for sharing all of this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and congratulations on the new podcast. 
You've been listening to The Five Podcast, where we tackle some of the big questions of today. The podcast is brought to you by Five Media, a new global media platform that aims to change the conversation through quality journalism. Go to fivemedia.com for more Five content and subscribe to the podcast to never miss an episode. New episodes are out every second Friday. See you there. Bye. Bye.